0: Hey, Laura here. I'm gonna play you some music and then we're gonna talk about how it's all connected. Then there's these two. these two the tms t music heads get it but most of us would never know that all these bands, from the Cocteau Twins to the Breeders and Pixies, all the way through to the National in Beirut, they're all on the same record label. That label is 4AD. So today's guest is Nabil Ayers, and he is the US label manager for 4AD. As a musician and a record store owner, he was super influential in the Seattle music scene. And at 4AD, he's part of a global team that's not resting on their 40-year history. And Nabil isn't resting as a creative person. His memoir is coming out in 2022, and I'm so excited to have caught him at this stage. He's entering Liftoff on the long trajectory of publishing. It's a special time in the life of an emerging writer. For the last few years, Nabil has been making waves as he's finding his voice. He's earned some impressive placements in the New York Times, GQ, The Root, and Rolling Stone. At TMST, we want to keep introducing you to people we think you should know. Folks who are smart and doing really good, important work and making an impact on our culture. I know there are a ton of folks in the TMST community who are asking, how do I tap into this creative energy I'm feeling? Nabil is humble and passionate and has a quiet fire that I think will resonate. I really enjoyed this conversation and I think you will too. Hi, Nabil.
1: Hi. How's it going? Hello.
0: Great. I was telling you before we recorded that I've never been to so excited to talk to someone I just knew existed only a month ago. <laughs> or That's I didn't so know funny. existed only a month ago. <laughs> Thank you.
1: I'm really excited too.
0: We're born about the same time. And so oh, okay. we've listened to a lot of the same music. right? You have experienced that music in such a different way. So, from a f- fan perspective I just want to sponge all you know all these (laughs) nerdy music questions from you and I might have to go there here and there. That sounds fun. You're also now about to publish a book and I just can't wait to talk to you about your whole your whole path. Yeah. So I figured a good place to jump in is where you are now at 4AD.
1: You've
0: said that 4AD is a place where slightly outside characters can make slightly outsider music that affects people. <laughs> yeah,
1: that sounds like something I would say. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So w- maybe talk a little bit about how you, will drop in at where you landed, how you got to have a real job for the first time sure. at 4AD <laughs> yeah. and when that was and sort of what you meant by that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's I'd spent most of my life, or my certainly my adult career life, either playing in bands or, you know, working for myself. My my friend and I opened a record store when I think we were both 25, maybe he was 26 yeah. uh, in Seattle, and, and that's what we did. And at the same time, I started a small record label and was putting out records by my friend's band and my bands, and, and I've kind of always done that, and then just sort of, you know, knew tons of people at record labels from owning a record store in Seattle, obviously, and moved to New York. With the plan of running my own record label full-time i had a couple of bands that were doing well and it was kind of getting busier and the band i was in at the time who were called the long winters had just wound down like a long couple of years of touring so it felt like a great time to go to new york this was in 2008 and really give that a shot yeah and i ran into someone at a party who worked at beggars group which is the the sort of parent company over 4ad and several other labels and we just caught up and i told them what i was up to and you know my big thing was I'm so excited. I've just moved to New York. I'm not looking for a job. I'm not even interested in hearing about a job. This is what I'm going to do at least for the next year. You know, I've saved money, blah, blah, blah. And the next day he emailed and he was like, you know, I know you said all this stuff about not looking for a job, but 4AD, who is based in London, but has a very active presence in America, is looking for a specific 4AD person in New York, which they don't have. Would you at least be interested in hearing more about it? So... (laughs) that's the very short version and that's how and I ended you, up a yeah. few months later starting at 4AD it was you know it was it had been a favorite label of mine for years ever since I was a kid and heard Pixies and Cocteau Twins and all those incredible bands and so Oh my god no, yeah no. It just you know it was too good to be true and still is
0: I maybe certain people do I don't pay attention to record labels necessarily who puts no, out we, what We know <laughs> uh, Oh <laughs> yeah. that's a pain point
1: No it's fine
0: but when I, obviously in preparing to interview you, I wanted to see, and as I'm going down the list, I'm like, what is going on? 4AD is responsible for like all of my listening for the oh, past wow. 20 years. That's amazing. The, just, it just goes down. The National, I wrote all down, like the big ones that, <laughs> sorry, Paul, you're gonna have to edit this. <laughs> Bonnie St. Vincent, The National, Deer Hunter, Beirut, so what is your life like? Because you have a big job. So what is your job and what are your days like? How are you spending right. your time?
1: So my job, it's its always been the same. It's a job I started in 2009. Uh, I'm the general manager of 4AD in America. So 4AD is a British company, but my boss is this guy Simon, who runs the global company, and he's actually based in New York now, even though he's British and used to be in London. So mm-hmm. my job is you know, there are all these people who do specific things for for 4AD for the record company there are people who do publicity and it's their job to try to get our band's albums reviewed and get them on Fallon and TV shows and things like that there are people who do radio promotion there are people who do the art and the design and the layout and people who work on getting songs and TV commercials and films and also all these different departments these people who are all amazing and do these very specific things in New York um, and elsewhere in the world too but I just run America and my job is to kind of coordinate those when we're putting out an album and working with an artist and try to get the timing right and work a lot with the artist themselves and the manager and the UK <laughs> company because everything is based out of the UK and that's the sort of worldwide head so it still doesn't make a ton of sense and I think my mother still doesn't understand but it's
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean I think that makes I, sense. you know
1: I oversee all these people and and try to make it all work and try to make everyone happy and it's this weird thing where I think the assumption is just that yeah just go get it on the radio and go get the reviews and everything but sometimes it's Let's hold back on this and let's not even talk to radio until the album's been out for six months. It's a new artist and it will have a better shot once we've had more press or once they've toured more. There's a lot of yeah. that kind of sort of strategic stuff.
0: And you've had that job for 13 years? Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a big job.
1: I guess. How yeah. <laughs> the hell did you
0: find time to write? And I
1: know. I think, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this or how you do this, but I think um, I realized when we sold Sonic Boom, my record store, in 2016 that's when I realized, I mean, I was, when I moved to New York in 2008, I I still owned it with my partner, but I wasn't doing anything day to day with the record store. We would just talk yeah. about leases or, you know, big things when they came up, but he was running the store. But when we sold it, I had this weird, like, in the deal with the new buyer was that our email addresses would expire in 30 days. And I remember my partner <laughs> and I having this conversation where he was like, well, I, you know, at least you have this other email address. I have to invent a new Gmail or whatever. But I started thinking about it and I was like, this is weird because even though I haven't actually worked on it that much, it's a huge part of me and I started it with him and it mm-hmm. has been a big creative endeavor, even though it's it's a record store, but it def- absolutely had a lot of creativity involved yeah. and it was ending and suddenly, and I wasn't playing in a band. I was putting out records on my own small label, but that's so similar to 4AD. It's you know a much smaller scale version. So I did have this yeah. bit of a like... What is this the only thing I'm doing? Do I just work for this record company and go to work and go home? And I mean, it's a better job than that. But like, is that it? I don't own a record store. I don't play in a band. And that also coincided with reading and the starting of the writing. And I think that was a big reason that the writing became my new creative thing. And so and, and at that time, when I thought about that, I didn't want to quit or anything, but it's definitely the least excited I was about my job right then, when it was the only mm. thing I was doing. I was like, mm-hmm. so that's it? You just do this, and we'll put out another record in a month? And it yeah. had never it had never felt like that at the time I'd been there eight years, a long time. But it had never felt like that. It was always exciting. It changes enough. People come in. People come out. We have new artists, all that. So it never feels dull. But right. it did for a little while, and then I think the writing got me out of that slump. And I think mm-hmm. I just need to do different things to make one thing you know doing another thing doesn't take away from the first thing it adds to it I think my brain needs to be involved in more than one thing to engage in this and even when I'm I get stressed but there'll be times when the next draft of my manuscript was due in two weeks but I was working on that Rolling Stone piece and yeah it was so stressful and I loved it and it made me sort of figure out how to do both
0: well that's great we'll get to the book in a little bit sure Given your history of your career and, and all the work you've done, how has being part of such a long, rich, but very contemporary and, and sort of vital institution in music, how has it been for you as a creative person?
1: It's been great. I mean, it's really funny because I come from, you know, first and foremost, from playing music, from being a drummer in bands, but, but always from a very young age, actually contrary to the exact conversation we just had I always noticed record labels from yeah, I heard you kid. say that in an yeah interview. and you know I'd noticed impulse on jazz records and I was a huge Kiss fan as a kid and saw the Casablanca logo you know I, I really noticed that stuff and I don't think I yeah. knew what it meant but I knew that it meant something and that certain records had that in common so I've, I'd always been interested in the business side and even when i was in you know crappy bands in junior high and we were just recording our demos on a cassette i I was the one that was like let's make 10 copies and sell them at school tomorrow like i think i just always sort of (laughs) was aware that there is more than just playing music that these these business things could happen and that someone had to do that and when you're in that position you have to do it yourself no one else is gonna jump in and release my you know eighth grade demo so (laughs) i think college is when it really became you know, which is what college is supposed to be. I got a great internship at Polygram, which then was one of the six major distributors who had you know, A&M. And this was in the early 90s in Seattle, and Soundgarden yeah. was on A&M. It was a really, really exciting time. And I DJ'd on my college radio station and played in bands and was kind of you know, really involved in all those ways. So it was always still sort of very parallel. I was kind of playing music and somehow working in music at the same time. And even when we opened the record store, I played in bands the whole time. And in a way, I think I sort of forced myself to go down a path that would allow me to be in bands that could go on tour. And that was what stopped me from getting a real job after college, which when, if we're around the same age, when I graduated was a total possibility. It wasn't a hard thing. People no, graduated not from all. college and either went on to do graduate work or got a job. And it was something I definitely could have done and something I had to make a conscious decision to not do because I wanted to be in a band. And I knew that if I got a real job, that that, you know, if you're 22, 21, when I graduated, you start making any kind of real money that lets you get a nicer Ugh. apartment or lets you do things, it's God. really hard to go back and be like, but now I'm in a band. So, so, you know, I think I somehow realized that and just worked at a record store and worked at a temp job and played in a band and loved it.
0: Yeah, I had this desire to both write and I was very interested in music, but I kind of knew like if, If the writing world was another planet that was foreign to me, the music world felt like another galaxy. I just didn't make that conscious decision to go into it. And 15 years later, I was still in marketing and advertising. So, you know, I don't want that to be a tale for people, you know, if once you choose a path, you're stuck on it, because that's definitely not true. But it's interesting that you had that instinct early on.
1: And I don't really know. I just I, I remember it well. I just knew it. Yeah, I just felt it. It was that simple. I saw all my friends getting jobs, and they were all getting nice apartments, and they were taking me out to dinner on their company credit cards, and I loved it. And it also just really scared me. And I was like, "That's not. That's not going to allow me to do what I want to do." I think even actually having it around me made it even more obvious that I could maybe do that, and that I shouldn't.
0: Totally. I, it yeah. And sometimes you know, when people ask you why did you do this or that, you really don't know. It was right. just in you. <laughs> so it seems as though you are pretty guided by that instinct throughout. You just sort of so. follow the next breadcrumb and the next breadcrumb and yeah. the next breadcrumb. Yeah, and you have
1: to you try to make those breadcrumbs, whether that's, Absolutely. you know, it's not just complete luck and falling into places. But but yeah, even the 480 story I just told, I mean, that party I was at, you know, I think about things like this all the time. Of what if I hadn't gone to that party that night and mm-hmm. met Matt, who I've now worked with for 13 years? Right. <laughs> like, but, but who knows? But there's this whole other funny thing. It's another thing to get into where people always assume that the other thing that could have happened isn't as good. And it also could be better. Who knows? Why why can't it be like, wow, maybe I would have had a better job. But I don't know what that would be. So,
0: (laughs) Being a creative slash also and business person, are you a rare breed in 4AD or in the industry? Because I feel... I, find, I feel like that's something yeah. I know for in the literary world. It is pretty rare. Is it? Yeah,
1: my my, my editor uh, writes young adult novels, which is amazing. But that, oh, that's rare. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there are a lot. I mean, in music, less in at least in my world, but in the sort of the major label world, the big, you know, huge artist world, there are a lot of A&R people, presidents of labels, people like that who were producers or who were big engineers or who were artists probably not as many who actually are I think that's that's the rarity and but I I I sort of see myself more among I mean I guess obviously the writing thing is is me being creative but until that I was kind of a former drummer who worked for a record company which didn't feel that uncommon
0: and you didn't feel jaded by that
1: hmm (laughs) a little bit there was a little bit of like do I say I used to be a drummer? Do I say I right. am a drummer? Am, I you know, am a my, former drummer? Yeah, my mother, who's in her 70s, who was a ballet dancer all her life, but can't do it for health reasons, constantly grapples with the, like, I am a dancer, is what she mm-hmm. will tell people. And it's very important that she says it that way, but she thinks about mm-hmm. it a lot. It's interesting how you frame yourself. I mean, I play drums once a year right now. I don't have okay. a drum set in New York for space reasons. So, but I, feel, I still think I'm a drummer, but yeah. I wouldn't necessarily have this conversation with a drummer in one of our bands the same way I'm having it with you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I de- I'm fascinated with identity in that way. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is sort of essence, who you are at your essence. Mm-hmm. And that can precede what you do in a way. I always felt like I wanted to say that I was a writer more than anything, but I, what, at what point do I get to actually say that? And right. at what point do I get to say I'm what, an author? When did you decide? So- <laughs> when I started writing around 2012, 13, when I was trying to get sober, and I was t- writing in earnest, not just talking mm-hmm. bullshit about writing, right. I said, I'm a writer. Yeah, that's true. And then I called myself an author when I
1: published a book. Oh, right. Okay. I hadn't even thought about the author. I had I know. a new title, right?
0: Yeah, you do have a new <laughs> title. So you have been writing about identity more recently and sort of your growing up in or coming up in indie rock for lack of a better I don't know if you call it something else but that's
1: that's a good catch-all
0: which is and that maybe I'm stealing some of your words here because I've heard other interviews but it sounds like you found yourself writing stories maybe just talk about that the the piece that you wrote about the record store and then how oh, right. your how what kind of you have been interested in writing about since then
1: yeah this is this is a pretty a pretty easy one cuz it's so fresh because i talk about it so much right now but so i you know i was a terrible student in college everything we just talked about me being mm-hmm. in bands putting on parties do college radio station that's all i did and that's all i wanted to do i i went to a little fancy liberal arts college in Washington and loved it and had great friends and the whole social part of it was very important to me and I think I got a ton out of it but the actual class part was not my thing I don't know what I graduated <laughs> with but it began with a two it was about like a 2.3 or something like that
0: <laughs> It began with a two but I
1: got I got two A's in writing classes and to me it's not because I worked harder or because I applied myself differently I just really loved them and it was easy and it was fun and so <laughs> that was that. And I guess maybe I had some kind of talent for it if, if it went well. So that was always kind of in the back of my head. But after college, I just played in bands did the record store, did all these things, but writing was never part of it, never really thought about it. And there was a time in the mid-90s when one of the bands I was in was pulled over in the desert in Utah with a bunch of pot. And it wasn't even mine. I didn't smoke pot at the time, but it was ours because it was in our van. And it was enough. It was a really scary, crazy thing. It was uh, possession with intent to distribute. It was a felony charge because it was a lot. And uh, we were in jail and we were handcuffed and the whole thing. And it's a really crazy, weird, long story with tons of ins and outs. And we got off because we got an incredible attorney. And and that was that. But I've told the long version of the story so many times over the years. It's still really fresh in my head. And I think it was about five, five, maybe six years ago, I was on a flight to London for work and just kind of felt wide awake and bored and didn't want to watch anything and didn't have the internet and i just something just told me and i thought i was like i should just get out the laptop and start writing that story i feel like doing that that's, That just sounds fun right now and i have seven hours and i really told myself and i remember this from the two writing classes in college you know don't don't think about it don't overthink it no one ever needs to see this let alone mm-hmm. will it be published or anything just tell it like you would tell somebody you know tomorrow night or whatever. So I did, and I just kind of really wrote the entire flight. It was flying out, and it was really fun, and I was just laughing out loud to myself. It was so weird. And, uh... <laughs> oh, I'm so funny. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, I'm so good. And, uh, and then in London, I had that jet lag where I was staying up to like three or four in the morning every night, and I would just keep working on it, especially now that in a hotel I had an internet signal, so I was able to look up things that didn't really exist online in the 90s. So it was like, oh, weird. This is the date that we were in Cincinnati, or this was this place, and I could find all these, It's like this weird research project on myself, and when I came back, I'd written something like 80 pages, and that's a lot. just like, I don't, I have no idea what this is, but I know that something's happening, and I've, this has been really fun. I still don't really want anyone to see this, but that's not the point, so I enrolled in a, just a memoir writing class at, uh, was it Catapult? Is one of the, there's lots of them in New York, but you know, mm-hmm. it's Monday nights from 7 to 10, and It was great and it it was lots of prompts and it was lots of, you know, free writes and things where you just had to kind of write nonstop for 20 minutes or half an hour. And those are the things that I really liked. We did a lot of reading and everything, much like college. That was not (laughs) my thing, but the writing part was great. And I think I got a lot out of it and it just got my brain going. And during those free writes, I was just thinking, oh, let's tell the funny stories about Sonic Boo in the record store and let's tell other band stories and just kind of had all these sort of fragments of things. And that's about the same time I started dating the woman who's now my wife, mm-hmm. she came from a publishing background, very smart, great reader, all that. And so I think, that yeah, the first thing I published, so Sonic Boom is the record store that I co-owned in Seattle, and we sold it, my partner and I, in 2016. And when we did, we kind of had this conversation about, we sold it to a customer, like, this is a very positive thing, a lot of the employees are staying, all this, so how do we kind of put that out into the community? So The Stranger in Seattle is the the cool alt-weekly paper So The Stranger agreed and my partner agreed like, What if I took some of these stories I've been writing about the store And kind of condensed them into a shorter 1500 word piece And announced it in The Stranger And published that And it kind of came together really easily I remember our friend who's the editor was like Yeah that sounds great and I was like, well, do you want to see it? He's like, well, you have to send it. But like, yeah, we'll run it. <laughs> it's like, what? That, that's not how this he works. He trusted you
0: and he <laughs> right. knew people would be interested.
1: I guess, right? So, so, I mean, but that, and I'm sure you know this feeling. I mean, sending that was one of the scariest things I've ever done. Because that was, yeah. it's one thing to write all this stuff and have nobody see it. It's another thing to go, when even more than I was worried about it getting out in the world, I was worried about it not getting out in the world. I was worried about mm. him saying... Uh, you know now that I've read uh, this maybe we just do the announcement like you know of course that all the sort of insecurity and fear kicks in so that absolutely yep. kicked in until he was like yeah we're just going to make a couple small edits and punctuation and stuff like that and run it as planned and he did and it went great and it was really fun because the feedback wasn't you're an amazing writer this is great it was it was such a cool thing because it was so, so many people related to it because so many people yeah. that we knew and didn't know had come in the store or had been at that event that I talked about so the feedback was like Oh, I met my wife there at this in-store, like things like that. So even though the feedback wasn't specifically about me writing, it still felt like I'd put something out. Yeah, and you made
0: connections right. for people. So I loved it. really good. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And then pretty soon after, I think my wife was like, you know, this is great. This stuff's really fun. You should keep writing about your bands and your record store. But what you should really do is write about your race and your father, because that's what you're interested in. And that's what people are going to be interested in. And again, I got the. How do like, you feel about that? Got the dark gut. Like even just talking to her, I remember how that felt and thinking like, well, those that, that are the two scariest topics. Like that's, you know, yeah. people will have opinions about both of those things. And other people are involved. And it's not just me mm-hmm. having fun. Or it, It's, it's not know, talking it's total... about music,
0: which people can have opinions on, but they're not right.
1: controversial. Like right. That. But that is definitely that was the moment that got me started down that road. And I'm still on it, but I'm also still on the other road. And, and, you know, the book sort of combines all of this. There's definitely some record store and some bands in there, too. So what's been fun is the shorter pieces I've published over the last few years kind of still touch on all of those. I mean, there's some race things and but you know i published a piece earlier this year about being at the nirvana show where they played smells like teen spirit for the first time which was so much
0: fun to write blows my (laughs) mind the piece is really good but also everyone needs to read that who who was alive in the 90s for (laughs) for nirvana
1: it really was that great too yeah (laughs)
2: Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of the podcast. At TMST, we're passionate about having conversations that bring us together and help us stoke our love of life. That's why we created a dedicated site for the show. It's free, it's not a Facebook group, and we aren't mining your data to target you with ads. So check it out. And while you're there, please join TMST+, our paid membership group. TMST Plus members will play the critical role keeping this going and ad free there are no corporations backing us there's no advertisers i mean it's really up to us to pull together and make it happen you can make a one-time contribution or you can join our monthly program where you can help shape the show hear the complete unedited interviews and join regular online experiences with laura but know this you can make a huge difference right now for as little as ten dollars a month You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now and join us.
0: Did you feel like race was something that was you were experiencing consciously, or racism, or just race identity, being in a predominantly white industry? Were these conversations you had, or was it even more sort of buried than that, or am I—
1: yeah. is any of that true it's still I'm I'm still not totally sure but I'm definitely more sure than I than I ever have been about all sure, these things yeah. because I've been writing about it and thinking about it but you know I mean my my father is black my mother is white it's sort of it's mm-hmm. a little more complicated but that's the very simple yeah. basic breakdown uh, yeah. I've never known my father grew up with my mother who's wonderful had an incredible childhood you know on, on paper it doesn't sound very good she was young she was 21 when she Deliberately decided she wanted to have me. She wanted to be a young single mother Asked my father who she was barely dating and he said yes, but I'm not gonna be around and I've always Mm -hmm. known that so Of course there are things but it's not a divorce. No one left us there. It's a very unique situation And I've known about it since you know as long as I can remember my mother's been very upfront about it so the race thing I mean the first ten years of my life I was born in New York, we moved around a lot, but Cambridge, Massachusetts, Amherst, Massachusetts, which was amazing, back to New York, all within my first 10 years, and all of those places, mm. especially Amherst, were so, so diverse, and by diverse, mm. I don't mean, yeah, there were like five black kids in the class, I mean, like, everybody was like me, mm-hmm. everybody was racially mixed, a lot of people didn't have a father, like, I was really in no way unique, which was great, Yeah. And, you yeah. know, there was no, there was no norm kind of all especially of us.
0: for your first 10 years
1: right right so all like, of us were the norm so it was so I didn't realize how unusual it was it was just amazing and so I didn't have to think about it race really wasn't a thing it was like mm-hmm. this magical little bubble in Amherst it was crazy mm-hmm. and when I was 10 we moved to Salt Lake City my mother worked for American Express and they moved a big part of the company there and Salt Lake City is not like that but the <laughs> sure weird hasn't. thing and I've spent so much time talking about this over the years I lived there for seven years sixth grade through high school And still spent every summer in New York with my uncle, who I'm really close to. So kind of got the best of both worlds. Yeah, But Salt Lake was great, even though it's very white and, of course, very Mormon. I think it was about 60% then. The rest of the state is more so. But Salt Lake is the big city, just like the kindest, most accepting people. And it never felt weird to me. I had Mormon friends. I had non-Mormon friends. I had lots of white friends because that's who was there. But it really, it wasn't weird, and the only, I mean, there are tons of little race issues along the way, but I've only recently started to think about them because they're kind of sprinkled throughout the book, and when you write about your entire life and look back at it through that lens, it is really easy to be like, oh, right, there was that time when the high school football coach said this thing, and then this weird thing at the prom, and those things, and when you kind of list them, which is literally part of what I was doing when I was writing the book, suddenly it's like, oh, actually, there are, tons of things. But at the time, they felt isolated. And luckily for me, never that huge and never really scary or threatening, just more like, yeah, sure, touch my Afro, you know, just like things, but not huge things. So only recently, I think, have I kind of become aware of how much of that has always existed in my life. But I've also kind of just shrugged off.
0: And how do you hold that now that you sort of coming to your consciousness right
1: I I don't know it doesn't it doesn't make me mad at anyone at the time I mean again because none of these things were that bad a lot of these people you know kids don't know what they're doing they have no Mm -hmm. idea I don't think anything was you know meant to be harmful but I think you know even some of the people I mean there's some some of the stuff in the record store sections of the book I showed that to my partner who's white I did wasn't even thinking about the race stuff that's in there which there's a lot of I just said I want to show you this because you're in it and it talks a lot about the store and I want to make sure you're okay with it and that the details are correct and everything. Okay. And he emailed me back. This was just a couple of weeks ago. And he was like, wow, I didn't know any of this was happening. And I like, how was I during this basically asked mm. me and I was like, oh, right. That's, I didn't even, when I sent it to you, I wasn't even thinking about that stuff because, but it's just weird that, you know, the two of us own the store and did the same things in the same place. And now years later, I can have this totally different memory of it than he can.
0: Yeah, and it's where it's like a lens that you're putting on it at, at now you right. know, that you're applying to it, which was always there. I'm fascinated with identity things because I think so much of it is how we end up holding it yeah. and how it informs everything that we do. And I have noticed when I hold a certain part of my identity too tight or when I don't account for it enough, right. you know? And so I'm glad you're exploring that in the book, and I I know you. I don't want to spoil any of the book, but I'm really glad you're writing about that. Here's another question: How was writing it for you overall? What was that like? And maybe how is it different from your past creative endeavors? Right.
1: I mean, comparing—it's hard to compare to past creative endeavors. I mean, as I was always the drummer. I guess I played guitar in one band in college, but most of the time I was a drummer, which meant that, you know, I wasn't the songwriter. I wasn't writing lyrics. It is comparable in some ways, but from the creative standpoint, you know, there's nobody else to to blame anything on. It's me. It's what I'm saying. I'm putting it out there and that's it. So, So that's new and scary and really exciting and fun and definitely publishing these shorter pieces have absolutely been testing the waters, if that makes sense. And yeah. The, the big one that, that got me. So when my wife told me that I needed to write about my father and my race, I was like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll try doing that. And I started and I wrote this piece that I don't even know where it came from. It's, it's, it's published in The Root. And it's a very just it's almost like to me, like when I look at it now, I'm like, what was I thinking? Like, it's almost like this manifesto that just kind of says, like, I'm biracial. I've never had that strong racial identity my life mm-hmm. actually hasn't been that difficult because of it and there are some weird circumstances the end and
0: i <laughs> like, read it i don't think it's just that it <laughs>
1: but that, that's that's the insecure <laughs> side thinking like why did you do this but so i originally pitched that to npr code switch who i love mm-hmm. and ultimately ended up writing for which is great but they came back and they're like look this is really nice but this doesn't have like you know, they're things they want, like, an angle or a, something crazy, which I ended up doing with them later. And so I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And so I pitched it to The Root, realizing, like, to me, it was like, code switch NPR, you're going to at least hit a pretty large liberal white audience with that. Obviously not completely, but definitely more yeah. so than The Root, which is a very black website. Yeah. Um, but I love The Root, and the editor's email was sitting right there in the masthead. And so I was like, well, I'm just going to try this. And I emailed her, and she emailed right back saying, like, I'd love to read it. And I sent it and had that feeling again. And then she emailed back the next day saying, great, let's run it Saturday. And I was like, oh, my God. Wow. And I was like, and this is <laughs> and the first thing I thought is that there are going to be people who read this, who hate this, who are really mad because of my easy life. I'm doing air quotes right now. And I knew that and that scared me. But, it, you know, I wasn't I wasn't saying anything untrue. And this is how I feel about my book. I've been telling my story and I wasn't. I don't think bragging about it or saying my story is better than yours or you should have done this. It wasn't an advice piece. It was simply here. So I've kind of no, gone. Here's one at all. piece of how I've gone through life. So it went out and the root They have comments. They allow comments Oh, <laughs> and,
0: oh. and I knew that
1: and my wife even before it went no up,
0: one advised you to my not read wife the did. Comments? My wife said
1: do not read the comments before they even went up before there are any and Pretty soon there were like 20 comments, and I was like, I think I need to read the comments. And I read the comments, and they were almost all brutal, like just everything you would imagine, like, oh, really? Well, you know, screw you and your easy life. Here's how it's been for me and all this stuff. And when I got done, I was like, oh, great. This is great. For so many reasons, I can do this now. It's great to affect people. I I love – I don't want to make people feel bad, but, I mean, getting a reaction out of people is important, and it's not always going to be positive. And if you say something, that affects – people that way that's also I think interesting and powerful and I liked that and I also just like that I had a thick enough skin that I read all those and kept going and felt like great that was almost that was the weird test that I cannot write about race and my father
0: okay that's a you should celebrate that that was your reaction <laughs> it sounds like you did a little bit but it's that's not always how it right. feels you know have, have you um, written for
1: a site with brutal comments <laughs> and, oh yeah
0: yeah or just being a person on social media oh, right. yeah. I mean you can't get away from mm-hmm. it I have at times had thick skin and have at times not and you'll experience the same with the yeah. book the more important message here is it can't matter if you're to continue right it can't matter that much if you're to continue I, I think feedback in some ways from the people obviously that are close to you is very mm-hmm. important I think that the the fact that you took it that way is great and yeah you talk about certain topics, no matter what it's going to rub people, but okay, so you wrote that though, and then it obviously it takes an extraordinary amount of effort and time and endurance to write a book. You have to really care about the topic you're writing about. Right. so something opened
1: right, right, so I
0: when you wrote that, yeah,
1: absolutely that. I mean, my wife's encouragement was one thing, and then publishing that piece and feeling okay about it was the second thing. And I think then then I took another writing class, and my, my move then was, I don't know how to just start writing about that stuff, but I do know what I can do, because I've met my father a handful of times in my life. Once, where I actually got to sit with him as an adult when I was in my 30s and have lunch and talk for a while, almost interview him. Hmm. But many times as a kid, sometimes really, really briefly, sometimes for a few minutes, and I remember not all of them, but you know, a handful. And so what I thought I'd do is I'll just write about each of those times and those will be moments. And I'll just try to remember everything I can from them and what I got from them and what it felt like. And then, of course, it turned into, all oh, right, that was that summer when I was with my uncle in New York and we ran into my father. And that summer in New York was really fun. Like, I think there's something happening where once I started writing, it got easier to keep writing. And so I'd start writing about my father, but it would just turn into a sort of time and place thing that expanded into something else. And before I knew it, I had these yeah. like five points. So I definitely didn't write the book from beginning to end, even though that's, it's a memoir and it's very chronological. But I think I started it with these five pieces from, you know, whatever, three years old, 10 years old, 15 years old, 35 years old. And yeah. then kind of filled it. It's like a coloring book or something, but just filled in with with it other is. stuff and try to figure out what's the balance between, My father and race and band and labels and what was happening at the time and, you know, tried to get that all together.
0: The process of writing my memoir was many things for me, but one of them was it revealed parts of me to myself that I learned a lot about myself writing it. So did you find that to be the same experience and what did you learn? did I
1: learn about myself? Ah, I mean, I know I did. Now I'm trying to scan the chapters. Yeah, right there wasn't a huge takeaway. I mean, Mm -hmm. the thing we just talked about, I think it's not necessarily a big lesson about myself, but if you'd asked me or if I'd asked myself before this was done a few years ago about racism in my life and if I'd experienced much and how I felt about race and everything, I think I would have said, no, it's fine. I've been lucky and I've kind of just like skated through and nothing's really ever happened. And that is absolutely not true. And the book yeah. doesn't completely focus on that, and I could have written a lot more about that, but it definitely opened my eyes to really how scary that stuff can be. And I mean, a lot of it, there, there's yeah. I was in a few different bands, and there's parts where we're touring through America and touring through Europe, but touring through Europe was never scary. Touring through America always terrified me, and I still have really? this like fear of what? just that someone's going to see me at a gas station and not like the way I look, and that's going to... The wrong way,
0: and shit, you didn't realize that until you started to write about no, it. No,
1: I, 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 definitely did, because I always had that fear. I mean, the van, you know, we we're in a van. Every time we pulled into a gas station somewhere, I would always sort of do a little scan of the parking lot before I got out. I think I always knew about it, but that stuff, I think, because it was so ingrained in me and it was so knee-jerk, that I actually that that never felt like a thing to me. And luckily, not much ever happened, yeah. and maybe it never happened because I was always doing that. Or maybe it was never going to happen, and I didn't need to do that. And maybe I brought all that fear to myself totally unnecessarily. We'll never know. But no matter what, going back years later and looking at years of it and putting it all together is like, oh, wow, I was scared every day. But it didn't feel like I was scared every day, every day.
0: Yeah, well, what is unconscious is unconscious, you know, and it's just the water you're swimming in. So until you explore that, it's – It's just what you know. Okay, so you did learn something significant. (laughs) What about in the writing process? Anything in there? Like, how did you find that?
1: I mean, I loved it and-
0: You did? The whole time? No,
1: not the whole time. Of course not. I (laughs) I hated a lot of it, but overall I would say I loved it.
0: I was like, you're a unicorn and you need to write many more books because you're the only one. It's a funny
1: thing because it's, you know, I have friends or you know acquaintances who are like, wow, so, they just like said you should write a book there's like no there is no they, uh, they. <laughs> the classic they it's like yeah someone just gave you a book deal or whatever even rolling stone just called you to do that nirvana thing it's like no i've at least to this point and i of course hope it gets easier but worked very hard and done everything on my own and luckily i've had you know friends and people who've helped connect me with people but the, the fact that i think i had to push myself to do it there was no one else telling me to write whatever 250 pages about myself made it so i kind of had to like it if that makes any sense and i yeah. really
0: i mean it is extraordinary that you did this it is very extraordinary that you did it on your own All right oh
1: thanks <laughs> a... mostly i think i really did enjoy it and there's an incredible feeling when you and you probably know this when you're, you know, it feels terrible when you're stuck or when you when you think, oh, this whole section's terrible. Why did I do this? I should take it out. What am I doing? But there's a really incredible feeling when, or at least for me, when I forgot about something and it just popped up where it's like, oh, yes. this happened in the middle of this. And yes. that becomes the new focus and the stuff that surrounds it maybe even goes away or doesn't. But it, it the process brings up so many things because you're reflecting so much upon whatever it is. So.
0: Yeah, I joke that it was like therapy on steroids for me because you just so much comes up into your consciousness that you because if you remembered all that all the time, you would you couldn't function. (laughs) Right, right?
1: it's true. So
0: good writing really slows down. You know, they say show, don't tell. If you're going to show someone what it was like to be experiencing whatever you're writing about, you have to really be in it. Right not the person watching it. And that brings up all kinds of yeah. stuff. So I feel you on that. But, but man, there has been nothing that is... It was like therapy on steroids in the beneficial mm-hmm. sense, too. It widened the aperture so much on my story, right. the story I had going on. And not just about myself, but other people, too. I don't know if you found that. Like, oh my gosh, I have so much... Even more love for my Absolutely. brother, or yeah. I didn't really think about that from my mom's perspective in that one day and that one scene, or you know, Definitely. whatever it
1: is. I think the the thing that I'm—it's not really a worry. It's a, a thing that I know is going to happen. Where, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not a very emotional pouring out person. I have lots of great friends, but they definitely don't always know what I'm thinking, and they don't need to. Mm. At least <laughs> and from my point of view, that's fine. <laughs> that's what you but say. Yeah, they're about to read what I was thinking <laughs> at the time because yeah. now I'm thinking about it. And and again, it's not. None of this is slamming people, but I do think I'm gonna get a lot of like my record store partner, a lot of people just saying like, "Wow, I I was with you that whole time in college, and I never knew that this was going on or that you were thinking about this." And I almost feel a yeah. bit like deceptive even though I'm I not it's just mean. when you finally sit down and look at it all with this huge wide lens and talk about it it weaves together this narrative that I didn't notice when it was happening you know in real time
0: Yeah that's a real thing and especially for people who are very close to you and you know for me it was my mother even my brother oh. they're very prominent in the book my mom was the most, she was upset for many reasons uh, when she read my book, but she was the most upset because she said, I didn't know how much pain you were. I just had no idea. Oh, wow. And it, so it was so deeply upsetting yeah. to her to not know that. And as a mom, I completely understand that. But it was also like, nobody knew. Right.
1: right. Maybe you didn't know.
0: And I didn't. Exactly. That's, that's part of the, the deal. I think I, I actually heard you say something like this, that once you started to write you started to pay attention a bit more. Definitely. In your life. And I feel like I've had that going on even before I started writing, just but more so once I really did. It, there's like a a writer that's watching the life and then there's just you in your life. Yeah. And going sometimes it's, you know, snarky and sort of voyeuristic <laughs> like is this going to is this going to be good material? It's also yeah.
1: strangely I'd never been a huge reader and and I think this is actually the writing is parallel to when I kind of got into reading for whatever reason around the same time I started reading a lot and I Uh. think that is connected but it's I don't want to say it's ruined reading but it's definitely made me read books differently and there are times I'm like oh yeah that's an editor sentence or you know or that that's but that's (laughs) just too nicely buttoned up and I don't I bet they had help with that just things that you know you notice that I wouldn't have noticed yeah you're
0: ruined forever in that way
1: and music music is like that too it's the same thing it's like the equivalent of oh I'm sure let's get to the chorus faster or whatever you know all those things
0: oh my god I never even thought of that it's
1: also parallel to not just to music to me but to the the sort of, not business of, but the sort of process of. To, to me, I've been, when I, you know, publish these smaller pieces, those are singles that I'm putting out. And this book is my album. Yeah. And that's absolutely Leading up what to it's the felt album. like. Yeah. And they're all actually, they're not exact parts that are in the book, but they all kind of touch on different things. So it really does feel like that to me.
0: Man, I don't think it hurts to have that, for you, be thinking that way. I think that as long as you don't, I don't know, maybe capitalize on it in some creepy way
1: <laughs> like what what could i do
0: <laughs> it just makes it just makes you a smart business person and and it and you know artists i wish more artists were good at marketing their work because i want to know about right. it you know and and you know how important marketing is sometimes it's a bunch of crap but sometimes <laughs> it really glorifies the essence of what something is and adds to it it's additive right, right? right. so so I don't think it's so bad to be thinking that way. Yeah. So are you one of those people that your work, I mean, I assume so, but I wanna ask you that what you do for work is so personal that your personal life and your work life, there's this like blending and bleeding together. There's a
1: there's a big blend. It's not just the actual work itself. I mean, I really do love the artists we work with and good friends with a lot of them and some of, you know, tune yards, I think. I met a week after I started working there in 2009 and oh, we wow. just put out her fifth record and she's friends yeah. with my mother because they both used to live in <laughs> Oakland at the same time. Like, it's, oh, it's wow. not like that with everyone, but there's a lot of that. And yeah. and of course, the music that these people make is also amazing. But there's also, it's a very tight company. It's different to me than being in a band or making music, but it's yeah. it's tied to it in that, you know, when I said that I was noticing record labels when I was a kid and putting out demo tapes and everything, the fact that I'm not in the band doesn't mean I get zero of that satisfaction because when I was in a band and we put out a record or got a review or got something, I got it wasn't just the playing that was fun for me; it was all the business stuff too. No, so I still get a good chunk of it when one of our bands, when something good happens for them, and yeah. we have somewhere around fifteen bands and a lot of good things happen for them. So it, it's actually in a weird way better than being in a band. When you're in one band. When it's going well, it's great. And when it's not, right. it's terrible. You're really riding the, <laughs> right. right.
0: You only have one sort of emotional frequency that you can ride. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like to me, or as someone who's sort of squarely in their dharma, the which is, I don't, I talk about that a lot, the sort of yogic term for a purpose, or right. I don't feel like everyone has to live there, but man, you're lucky if you do.
1: Yeah. I feel like that's what I'm doing. I think, I mean, it's...
0: It seems I don't like
1: think it's, it. Uh, I, my job never feels hard, if that makes sense, which is not to say that it's easy. I mean, there are plenty of arguments and angry bands and angry managers, lots of things. Everyone's not happy all the time. And sometimes yeah. I get the call or I get blamed or whatever. It's like, it's it's a normal job in very many ways. But generally, it's just great. And
0: it's... Well, you care. You're gen- You're right. genuinely interested and curious about and still have a love for... The, the space that you're in,
1: right I, right? I would
0: imagine. And I feel the same way. I Lots of my parts of my day are job stuff, you know, right. normal job stuff. Having worked in a place that wasn't right for me, you know, in marketing and advertising, where it, there were great times, you know, good things about that, and I use it all now. But it, I it never felt like, yes, this is where I want to be. Right, you know? right. I told you before we got on, I've never... Learned about someone who I felt like oh my gosh. There's another sort of person like there, uh, like me who is a business person But also a creative person and so it's just been really neat to talk to you Where can people find out about you and find your writing and
1: the writing is all at Nabeel dot hmm. That's really the best place. I mean the record company yeah. is for dot
0: If you're into music people just go look at their list. It's wild.
1: It is very good. <laughs> I feel very lucky
0: They are very, very good. Thank you for hanging out with us today. We want every episode of Tell Me Something True to give you something you can use in your life. We also don't want there to be any barriers between us. That's why we built our own online community. It's free, it's not Facebook and you can head on over to tmstpod.com to connect with folks around this episode. Also, have you noticed there aren't any ads on TMST? That's by design. We want to keep the show and our digital spaces ad-free, but that's a goal we can only accomplish if we work together. And that's where you can make a huge difference. TMST is being built as an ad-free, subscriber-driven project. The subscribing members will play the critical role in keeping this going and keeping it ad-free. There are no corporations backing us, no sponsors, so it's really up to us. And the good news is folks are signing up. Thank you so much to all of you who have come on board for this very unusual way to do things. You can join them when you make a one-time contribution or join our monthly program. We have cool opportunities for you to help shape the show, hear the complete unedited interviews, ask our guests questions before they're on, and connect with other TMST folks. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $10 a month. So head on over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael El and I dreamed up this show and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time at Tell Me Something True.